the people who corrupt they work collaborate and cooperate very well together keeping everything in secret and never let anything loose from the, their ring Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. In today's episode, we look at Thailand. For that, we invited Toplus Yumnak. He is an assistant professor in economics at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok. This is the third take, so please excuse this horrible pronunciation. In the interview, Matthew and Toplus take a deep dive into the current corruption situation in Thailand and explore ways to strengthen the judiciary. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Greetings and welcome to Kickback. This is Matthew Stevenson. On today's episode of Kickback, I am just delighted to be joined by Torplus Yomnek, who uses uh, the English name Nick. Nick is an assistant professor of economics at Chulalongkorn University in uh, Bangkok, Thailand. He is also, also a researcher at Siam Lab and the chief advisor to an organization called Hand Social Enterprise. Uh, he's also one of the winners of the United States State Department's 2021 Anti-Corruption Champions Award. So his work on uh, anti-corruption in uh, his home country of Thailand has already received international uh, recognition, very well deserved. I will finally add, since this is after all an anti-corruption podcast, I, I feel like I should add this, uh, I am currently in Bangkok as a, a guest of Chulalongkorn University and Nick, uh, so uh, he has been a very gracious host, and I will just mention that at the outset, in case any of you think I'm going unduly easy on him uh, and are worried In all seriousness, um, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to appear on this podcast. I'm just so happy to be able to, to chat with you today. Thank you very much for your kind introduction, Professor Stephenson. Uh, nice to get, get to talk to you. And, and, and it's an honor for me to be uh, on your podcast as well. Maybe uh, we can get the conversation started by asking you to share with me and with our listeners a little bit about your own background. So what led you to focus on corruption as one of your principal research areas? And what also led you to go beyond purely academic research to some of the outside activities that you've engaged in, in more of uh, an activist or advocacy capacity? Okay, long story short, uh, it started when I was doing my bachelor degree in economics at Jalalongkorn University. The, our senior year, we have to do our senior research. And the professor that I asked to be my advisor told me to go back and like read all the books in your house and go to the library, of course. And somehow the, the book that I, that I found uh, are about corruption. And I became interested in what, what it is about, uh, perhaps because, well, uh, at that time and perhaps currently as well, corruption is quite pervasive in Thailand. So I would like to know more about it and know more whether we can do something about this problem. So that's kind of like how I started working and, and uh, reading about corruption. And so I wrote this senior research on policy corruption, and it led me to my uh, master thesis on, um, on corruption as well on Thailand's construction sector. 
And then I continue this line of research through my PhD at, uh, at uh, Cambridge. And so, yeah, I, I remember that day when I graduated, I was telling my friends that, yeah, I finished, uh, I spent four or five years working on uh, writing something about corruption. And all my friends were like, yeah, you're good, I, I, good for you, but what, it's going to be something written on books, right, uh, or papers. Can you actually do anything about it? So that's kind of like why I came back to be a lecturer and, and co-founded Siam Lab with Professor Tani Chaiwat here. He's a behavioral and experimental economist. So we together we found we found this lab, uh, anti-corruption lab called Siam Lab to look at how we can study corruption from multidisciplinary approach, including behavioral and experimental economics. And then once we did more research about it, we we would like to actually do something about this. So I then go and co-found that uh, what you call it, uh, an organization called Hand Social Enterprise. Now you can imagine why it's called Hand because we have been thought we have been thinking about this issue a lot, but we haven't actually done anything about it. So it's kind of like a hand to actually do something about this issue. So it worked perfectly together with Siam Lab because the research result we generated from Siam Lab. We use it at hand social enterprise. So we actually uh, create website, create platform. We did, we went into uh, rural areas and urban areas all around the country and kind of like use the result in practice. And once results are generated from, from those projects, we then use it to do more studies at Siam Lab. So it, it like kind of worked perfectly together in, uh, I would kind of call it an eco, a small ecosystem something like that. So th that's very brief about me. Well, that's fascinating. And I really want to follow up with you about Siam Lab and Hand Social Enterprise and the relationship between them. I think that's uh, what you just said is going to be of great interest to many of our listeners, because as I'm sure you know, in the area, as, in fact, as you just said, in the area of anti-corruption elsewhere, there is this question about how to improve the interaction between and engagement between the research side, people like me in my world are pretty much principally pure researchers and people doing advocacy and activism and, and practitioner work. The practitioner scholar scholar divide is, is, a, is a persistent issue. And so the idea that you have these sort of sibling organizations, it sounds like, Siam Lab, uh, I guess the implication, what you said a moment ago, Siam Lab is like the head and hand is like the hand, and they're supposed to work together, um, which sounds uh, great. I, I would love to ask you maybe to elaborate a little bit more and get a little bit more specific about what you just said about how this dynamic process works. Because again, I think many listeners in our audience, and certainly me as well, are, are fascinated by this, but would like to know more. Because a lot of people talk about this. A lot of people like talk about how can we get, uh, make it so that academic research really informs uh, practitioner work and the practitioner work really feeds back into the, the research side of things. Can you give me you know, your favorite example or one or two examples or illustrations of either things that you've already done or maybe that you're in process of doing or, or, or plan to do in the future that makes a little bit more concrete how this dynamic interactive process you just described works in practice? Of course, uh, that is a great question because it was something that I... Uh, was thinking about it a lot uh, when when I 
uh, earlier co-founded both uh, organizations. What should we start doing? So um, let me give you some examples, perhaps two examples that could uh, illustrate your questions. The first one is that one of the first research that we did at Siam Lab was to see the collaboration between among anti-corruption organization, both state organization and civil organization. So how how they how they work together? Because, well, we have seen that in Thailand there are at least 30 to 40 organizations working specifically on anti-corruption, and they seem to be like working very individually. They don't cooperate very well. Well, of course, they meet in in meetings, but then when they go back home and they, they will start working on their own um, mission. While when we think about it, on the contrary, the people who corrupt they work, collaborate, and cooperate very well together, keeping everything in secret and never let anything loose from the, their ring. So. That's like one of the first research. So we use the social network analysis to see how different organizations work together and how close they work together, and whether there is a, a perfect link between all the organization, or whether if just one organization is the node, there is a central node between all the organizations. So cut short to the result, we found that well, as we earlier suspected. Uh, they did not work very well together. So we came up with some suggestions. For example, this organization has something that uh, organization B should uh, have and they, they, uh, demand. So we kind of like did a suggestion, proposed suggestion of this uh, organization should be working with that, and and that is the uh, was the outcome of the research. But then it was a research. Not so many people actually read it. So we gave this to Han. The Han Social Enterprise. They work very closely. They were they were among these organizations. So they work very closely with the National Anti-Corruption Commission of Thailand, the NACC, and which is the like the main anti-corruption organization, a state, of course. They work very also very closely with the anti-corruption organization Thailand. I, I know the name is very similar, but the second one, the latter one, is the civil organization, uh, civil uh, well, well, people's organization, civil organization. So Han used this methodology or or the strategy as their way to help communicate with all these agencies. And at the end, we came up with several uh, working group that allow these people who should who should be working together to form a small working group. And from from that day on, it has been three years at least that. There's a small working group between different organizations that the the research suggested that they should be working together. So, so that's one thing that research to show that research has been put into practice. Another one that well we can say that we are proud of um, is that well we have been working a lot lately on the issue of open data and op- open government on how to use that to create more transparency. In order to fight corruption, so we have conducted research, and a result, uh, the the result, uh, the finding is that uh, this is the way that the data should be displayed. Uh, these are the data that is publicly available, but very difficult to find, 
and, and could be very useful to detect corrupt activities. So now that we have all the results, Han went all around, find, uh, they found funding and found collaboration with the anti-corruption organization, the civil, uh, civil society organization again, and together Han and uh, this organization worked together to develop an actual open data platform called ACTAI, A-C-T-A-I. So you can do it, search it online right now, actai.co. Basically, it gathered uh, procurement information together from five years ago to, to, to present day. We currently have 22 million data set on public procurement, and we use an algorithm to give red flags to, to projects that could potentially have high risk of corruption or per, uh, per, we can say loopholes that is prone to corruption. And for that last year, we from this platform, uh, we have given red flags to almost 80,000 public projects. And it has been on news everywhere. And the government is responding to that, uh, asking the NACC, as I mentioned earlier, to look into all these 80,000 projects. So, so that's something that has been developed from just merely a research into an actual platform and has done something for, for the society and has actually poked the government to do something. So, so these are the two examples that we have done between the Siam Lab Research Center and Han Social Enterprise. And with respect to that latter project, the, the Open Data and Public Procurement Project, you mentioned that the, that the existence of the project has prodded the government into response. How have you found the government's receptivity to that project and others like it? Because in some countries, uh, let me just elaborate the reason for the question. In some countries, when civil society organizations are undertaking these kinds of product projects to pull together publicly available data, to provide information about potential wrongdoing or at least red flags, the governments are uh, very receptive. They view civil society really as a, a partner, often a crucial partner, really want to work together, be very supportive and so forth. In other places, the government is less receptive. In some cases, like downright hostile because not everyone in the government is thrilled uh, with the idea that you might be identifying contracts that may be enriching, uh, among others, corrupt public officials, or just they don't like the idea of civil society sort of meddlers uh, and view them with a view with a little bit of um, suspicion or at least aloofness. And in Thailand, of course, it's complicated because, as in every other country, the government is not one thing. But I'd be curious about the reaction of the government or different entities of government or different levels of government to the kinds of things you're you're doing. Well, I can say that Thailand is among the the latter group of countries that you just mentioned. And we, we struggled with that a lot when, when we uh, earlier published these information for, uh, through our platform. The government wasn't very quite well re- received all these information. But fortunately, we have very, again, linked to the first uh, research that I talked about, it, it all linked together. So we have very good relationship with all these investigative journalism, which they are in the working group that has been working from for three or four years already and that I mentioned earlier. So we have good relationship with all these investigative journalists with a social media group. So when, so once they, the, these journalists learn about these information, they publish 
online, they're published in mainstream media, and people and people receive this information with enthusiasm. So when they share, when they talk about it, it creates something that that the government can't just hide away from this. So in a way, everything together, I can say that people is really the key for everything. So when people act something based on information, the government can't just hide away. So that's why they reacted to to the information that I just uh, talked about. But it has taken us several, quite some times, uh, years. For this thing to happen, and, and I'm sure that this is just the start. They might say that okay, they are reacting to this. The government asked the NACC to look to look or investigate into this 80,000 projects, but but we have to still continue to follow whether the NACC will actually find something or will actually do a, a, a real investigation on these projects or just the announcement that just come and goes. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because uh, I think it's great. And I think perhaps this, this would be an inspiration to other people in other countries trying to do similar sorts of things. It's great that through a combination of um, civil society outreach, outreach to the media, mobilization of the general public, you were able not just to produce this information, not just to name uh, procurement contracts that had some factors that, that triggered a red flag, but to force the government to actually do something about it. That said, on the one hand, Saying that that your anti-corruption commission has opened 80,000 investigations, investigations to 80,000 contracts, um, sounds really good. On the other hand, you can see why it's a little bit worrisome, especially when one takes into account the fact that, as I'm sure is the case in Thailand as elsewhere, these investigations take some time, right? Unless the corrupt actors were so foolish as to leave, uh, and sometimes they are, but like they're so arrogant or so foolish that it's just really easy to discover the wrongdoing. The cases take a while. So I imagine one might have, you know, so one or more of the following worries. So, so the NAC has, NACC has, thanks to you guys, 80,000 leads they're looking into, but, you know, they only have the resources to go after some of them and all the cases take a while. And in the meantime, you know, the public that you've managed to get interested in this, they, can, they got other things to do. They can't be constantly paying attention to this. So I imagine that one of the challenges is going to be how do you keep up the pressure on the NACC, and how do you know if they're doing a good job? How can you assess that? I'm sure that you and your collaborators have thought about this, but now that you've gotten kind of past that first stage of getting the, using publicly available open data to to red flag certain actions and get using your uh, network of civil society and media organizations to force the government to look into this, what happens next? How do you? What strategies can you use to continue to to keep up the pressure to make sure that these cases don't just languish or die or or, or disappear? That's a very good question, and I'm not sure whether I have good answers for that um, because I totally understand. Let me give you one example. Uh, one of the notorious scandal case in in Thailand is called the Klong Dan Wastewater Management. It is very clear. It has spent like what is it, 20 billion baht on building one wastewater management plan started many years ago, and then it took 10 years and nothing has been done. Uh, currently, the project is kind of like complete, completed, but could not really work. So definitely there's corruption. The NACC has taken at least 12 years for the investigation. And 12 years is long enough for one of the culprit 
to pass away and one to flip the country already. So, so I totally understand that the process do take time. And all these 80,000 projects would be something, something along this nature as well. And so I feel, and I totally understand uh, the NACCs that they probably wouldn't be able to, to open an 80,000 investigation. But our aim is basically for at least the NACC to open all the investigation into cases that are, well, all these 80,000 projects will have some, some of the projects will be more likely to be, be able to investigate for corruption crimes easily than others, perhaps, or some case might have, as you put it, uh, foolish actors involved in, in those cases. So this could be something that, that can be the showcase from the NACC, but from our perspective, from the civil society and from the research, uh, researcher perspective, we merely aim to show the public, the government officials and politicians that we are now able to see you, what you are doing is no longer in secret. We have light to shine on what you are doing. And all these 80,000 projects in the past may not all be investigated, but in the future, if you are doing something wrong, it's very highly, highly likely that uh, your neighbor can see and they can report that case with some substantial evidence. And then you might be entitled to be investigated in the future. So, well, as I mentioned, I'm not sure whether this is the, the exact answer for, for what you're looking for, but it's very difficult to see into the investigative process. And to end my, my answer here is uh, back to you as well, Matthew, uh, because this is something that I think we could look into together into the, the, all these anti-corruption court, the, process, the investigation process of the NACC, how, how is it like, why does it take so long? And, and uh, is there any political interference into these investigation process? This could be our next uh, research together, perhaps. <laughs> it, it could, and if, if so, maybe we can get one of my collaborators to interview us jointly on this podcast. That, that of course, is for the future. Uh, I did want to actually maybe follow up on some of the things that you were just talking about and maybe situate them in, the, in a bit of a broader context. Because, of course, we've been talking about some of your very specific projects, which are really uh, important and useful. And as I said, maybe a model for others listening here who want to think about the kinds of things that they as, as advocates or activists might pursue. But I think it might be useful to step back a moment and think about the corruption situation, the anti-corruption situation in Thailand more generally because many of our listeners might be familiar with the Thai situation, but ma many of them might, might not be. And it might be useful if you could maybe step back a little bit and, and talk about, in general terms, where Thailand stands with respect to this issue. You know, as we are having this conversation, I think we're only a day or two away from Transparency International releasing the latest round of the Corruption Perceptions Index I imagine that by the time this interview airs, it will be maybe probably not more than a week, uh, in, if, if I'm correct, or at least certainly not more than a month since that index comes out. And there will be a number, right? There will be a number, and there are a lot of people who will be talking about that number. You and I, I think, are, are uh, of the opinion that people will be talking too much about that number and whether it's the same as or different from, from last year's number. But what I want, what I'm, the reason I'm saying this is that number 
is an understandable attempt to uh, simplify and put on a common scale some sense of the extent of the corruption problem in Thailand, combined with some sense of how effective Thailand's anti-corruption measures have, have been. Unpack that number for our listeners. When they see that number, it's 36 or 38 or 35 or whatever it is. If you can do this, you know, briefly, I know it's very complicated. I don't, I, it's unfair because one could go on for hours and hours describing everything. But if you had to, you know, in a couple of paragraphs, summarize the biggest corruption issues, let's say, facing Thailand and the biggest challenges and opportunities with respect to Thailand's anti-corruption efforts right now and in the next year or so, what might you say? Well, in, in general, corruption is highly pervasive in Thailand. And as well, according to the, the CPI score that you mentioned earlier, but well, we're entitled to our, our opinion on that. And I'm, I'm very in agreement with you on like based on your very recent article on CPI as well. Okay, back, back to Thailand. CPI obviously suggested that Thailand is around 36, 35, 38, which is a very low number, which means Thailand is highly, uh, corruption in Thailand is highly pervasive, but not only looking to that, but looking at other indicators as well. It is, it has been shown that we are not doing very well in both the corruption situation and both, and the anti-corruption efforts in our country. All, both the indicators and the perception of people working in this area focus on the political corruption that is highly pervasive and also the law enforcement uh, area. Uh, we have seen cases where police uh, officer has been, has been accused of receiving bribes. We have been hearing cases of uh, people from the attorney office uh, not prosecuting people with obvious corruption case or uh, scandals in the justice system of uh, briberies to allow people to allow uh, especially rich people to get away with their crimes. So, and this really demotivate the Thai people so much because if the justice system itself is corruptible, then what can we do anything about it? Because even though we can use all these uh, transparency tools to detect corruption, no matter what, it will not be proceeded. It will not be investigated. Oh, it may be investigated, but it will not go through with the, with the process. So that is the area that we need to focus on. So for your second question, this is the threat that we are facing. But it is also an opportunity because if we can do anything about this, then it would open all the doors to other opportunities as well. If the police, the attorney office, the court is uncorruptible, then when we, de- when we use open data to, to detect corruption, it will be processed and we'll, we can be happy about it. And, and the questions of how do we follow up with their work will not be very uh, difficult for us to answer if, if that is the case. It's so interesting you say that because I've often found myself with similar thoughts. People often ask, if you have corruption that's pervasive in a country, it affects many different organizations, many different government agencies, many different sectors. Where do you start if you can't do everything all at once? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't have hard academic research data to back this up, but I have the strong instinct 
that uh, if you have to pick one place to start, it would be the institutions of justice. If it's not a bit of a cheat to lump together police and courts and prosecutors together under that umbrella for exactly the reason that you say, because if the institutions of justice are compromised, it's very difficult to make progress against corruption in any other field. Whereas if you have functioning institutions of justice, then it becomes not easy, but substantially easier to tackle corruption elsewhere. If you have law enforcement that is a relatively clean, uh, if you have prosecutors and courts and, and uh, ministry of justice that will uh, take these issues seriously and behave in, in, a, in an honest manner. For the police, it's also important, not just as they're part of the institutions of justice, but because many citizens, their principal encounter with the state, at least in its coercive capacity, is with law enforcement. And if you encounter corruption, uh, corrupt police officers can really have a very direct and powerful effect on how citizens understand the state and its legitimacy and uh, their sense of vulnerability or efficacy or so forth. So, so everything you say to me is consistent with my own intuitions. Uh, as you know, it's very hard. And let me, so I'm going to ask you again, I, I know I'm, I may be pushing you in ways that are not completely fair, um, because these are very, very hard questions that don't lend themselves to, to simple pat answers. But what, in your view, do you think Thailand needs to do to make this progress on corruption in the set of institutions that I've collectively referred to as the institutions of justice. You mentioned earlier the NACC, the National Anti-Corruption Commission. I, I had always understood that this was at least part of an earlier attempt to do something about this, as in many other countries. Uh, there was this thought that if you're concerned about the ordinary law enforcement institutions not being appropriately positioned or not being politically willing to go after corruption, you can create a specialized entity that will have more independence, right, and special powers. Uh, Thailand now uh, has a specialized anti-corruption court, which may have uh, some similar ideas behind it. So I guess that would be, I guess, part of it. But but clearly, I take it from what you just said, you think much more needs to be done. And if you had the ear of the government of the day or of the NACC or of the appropriate decision makers, and you were able to lay out an agenda for what the Thai, what Thailand, I won't just say the Thai government, because many institutions might be involved, not just the government of the day. If, if Thailand as a, as, a, as a country wants to commit itself to cleaning up uh, its justice sector, including the police, prosecutors, courts, et cetera, what would be your agenda? What items would be on it? What are the things that are the, the highest priority? What would you do first? I mean, how do you, how do you uh, tackle this kind of corruption when it's so deeply entrenched? Thank you very much for the research question for our collaboration, and you can be my supervisor in that. But uh, just kidding. But but um, in, this this can actually be be a very good research for us. But okay, to uh, to try to answer it at the top of my head right now, to to answer in a in a practical sense as well. I think to start off with transparency and participation from the people side would help. Because I'm talking about because I'm relating this back to the to the case that I that I talked about about the open data and that the government they wouldn't uh, care about this at first and but then the pressure the public pressure made them do something about it. So so back here again, I would say that when we start with transparency, when we shed some light on what the public hasn't been able to see how the investigative process is being conducted 
who is involved in this and how it is moved from one institution from another institution. That if that is transparent enough for people to see, then people, if it's good, people will have trust in it. But if it's not, if it's not good, then people will, will have questions about it. And together with the media, they will have put some pressure to create change. So the, the brief idea is to create transparency, to have people see what is going on. So people don't just like say something that have rumors about whether it's Uh, the process is corrupt, but have actual substance evidence on how it is corrupt or how it is conducted in secrecy, and then and then hopefully, well, we can know more about how to improve the situation or how to develop the institute these institutions. So that all seems quite sensible to me. But can I just press you a little bit on that because? I understand entirely when you talk about increased transparency being not the whole solution, but an important part of the solution when it comes to public procurement. You got a lot of data on contracts and what they look like, and the companies that won the contract. And you can run your algorithm, and you can get information that suggests these contracts look suspicious because the contract price is unusually high. And with a business that doesn't have much prior experience in this area, and with a business that suspiciously won a very large number of contracts in this particular jurisdiction, despite having just been created last year, like I assume these are the kinds of things that are in your algorithm. Yeah. So, so um, okay. But we were just talking about the justice sector specifically, and again, I know we're lumping together a bunch of things there, but police, prosecutors, courts. Let's say like those are the, those are the let's say those are the big ones. So, what exactly does increased transparency of the sort you're describing look look like in that context? It doesn't seem like you've got the same sort of big data solution. So, so I'll just coming back to a couple of the the illustrative examples you mentioned when when you talked about the importance of the justice sector. So, police officers extorting bribes from people, you know, pulling someone over for a real or imagined traffic violation and demanding a certain number of you know Thai baht. In exchange for for not giving a ticket, or worse, I mean, there are much worse cases where police officers have been involved with drug trafficking or human trafficking cartels taking money to, in some cases, look the other way, or sometimes provide active protection for criminal networks. Or you mentioned, with respect to the prosecuting side of it, the attorney general's office quietly dropping a case or claiming there wasn't evidence to, enough to pursue a case where many people suspect there really was corruption there. So. In those contexts, it seems like yes, transparency could be part of the solution. But this very innovative thing you did for public procurement doesn't just neatly carry over, right? It's can't, you can't just kind of replicate that there. The nature of the transparency you would need, I think, would need to be different. And also, some people might be skeptical about whether transparency in that context would really have the same kind of productive effects, or even whether you know certain kinds of transparency would not be desirable. We don't actually want prosecutors, you know, disclosing to the world here's everything that we thought about when we were deciding. Like, here's the evidence that we had and how we gathered it. There are legitimate limits to the degree of transparency with respect to the, some of these institutions, especially in the justice sector. So, without at all disagreeing with any of what you said before, I just want to press you. To be a little bit more specific, when you talk about addressing corruption in the justice sector through increased transparency and citizen mobilization, what might that look like? Yeah, I know you don't have necessarily have to have it all worked out fully, but obviously this is something that you care about. We've already been working on some some transparency related projects through through Hand uh, Social Enterprise and through CM Lab. So if you had to 
sketch out uh, an agenda for pro-transparency, anti-corruption reform, specifically focused on the justice sector or some subset of the justice sector, if you want to pick particularly police or, or prosecutors or what have you. What might that look like? So in this context, may I give you an example of when we conducted one research to compare the work of the NACC, our Thai NACC, with the Indonesian Kapika. We actually went to have an interview with some officials from the Kapika, and we were very surprised to see how advanced their asset disclosure and transparency system is. So for example, I understand that most of the Uh, politicians and bureaucrat, high-level bureaucrats in Indonesia will have to disclose their uh, asset, but not to all the public, but will disclose it into this platform that the Kapika can investigate if there's something. So they compare the asset disclosure with the lifestyle of that bureaucrat. For example, one politician closed that they ha- he has very little income, but every weekend he uh, drove a Ferrari to play golf at this very expensive golf course. So that when, is when the Capita opened uh, in, an investigation and found that, okay, there's a trace uh, of bribery here and there. And then it led to a bigger investigation. And the case was, was found that he was involved with corruption. So this is a kind of transparency that I was, I was talking about. Um, of course, it is always good to have the, 100% this uh, transparency to everyone can see it but we have to also take into account the the personal information as well so um, only when something is detected and we can use like this system which can help detect and then open investigation when there is a red flag but the information needs to be there for the investigation to start or another example in Thailand Somehow in the in the provinces, many local politicians are very closely linked with uh, these or the these con- uh, construction contractor, and these companies always win contracts for their co- local government. So if we can know that there's a linkage between them, for example, this person is the the local politician is a shareholder, or his wife is a shareholder of this contractor. Who always win project? Then there's there's more information for red flag to be raised, and this is the kind of so the the later case is not la- that linked to to the justice system that much. But but in in that sense, the social network analysis, for example, the the attorney general may be linked by his family or by shareholding uh, uh, in companies that he didn't proceed the case with. Um, of course, it might not show that he's corrupt, but it may lead to further investigation and, and reduce the risk of bias or corruption in that case. Yeah, so the, the, of course, the, there's a lot packed into that last thing you said about leading to further investigation. Again, I don't want to, everything you said is, again, I found it quite persuasive. But of course, your earlier point, as I understood it, was that if the entities themselves responsible for doing the investigation are either themselves corrupt or at least susceptible to the influence of the corrupt, then a lot of things can get uh, buried when you get to that further investigation stage. I mean, I'm reminded, so I'm about to mention something that I gather is controversial in Thailand. So if you don't want to talk about it in a public podcast, we can skip over it. But when you talked about the example from Indonesia's Kapeka, 
that's the way it was in English it would be written KPK. That's the, the commission against, for those of our listeners not familiar, that's Indonesia's uh, very powerful, surprisingly powerful and effective commission against corruption. Uh, there was this instance where, incident where a powerful politician uh, had what looked like a low official salary, but was driving around in luxurious automobiles uh, and going to play golf. So this is a way that that uh, high level, at least politicians and sometimes lower level ones can be caught if their um, lifestyle or if their assets seem grossly disproportional to the lawful sources of income. Um, Thailand, my understanding is, does have a law on unexplained wealth or something like that. You can get into legal trouble if the government can prove that you have assets that are out of proportion to your lawful means of income unless you can explain it. So the controversial case I'm going to mention is this wristwatch case. Uh, And again, if you feel like not talking about it, you don't have to. But as you're describing the Indonesian Ferrari case, I couldn't help but think about the wristwatch case. So my understanding, and you correct me if my facts are wrong, because of course I'm not Thai, is that the extremely powerful current deputy prime minister of Thailand was photographed at some public event uh, and someone noticed he was holding up his hand, I think, to block the sun from his eyes. He was wearing an extremely expensive luxury watch. And then some intrepid internet sleuths doing the kind of thing that you're talking about, like using publicly available data that no one looked at, found a bunch of pictures of him wearing a whole variety of extremely expensive luxury watches. And so um, this got referred to the NACC, your anti-corruption commission. And this part of the story, it seems similar to the Indonesian story you just told. But the places the stories diverge is that I gather your uh, colleague or your contact at the KPK said that, and then they went after the politician. And I don't know if they convicted, got in legal trouble. And I gather the NACC did do an investigation, but at the end of the day, nothing happened, nothing was pursued. And I gather there was not a terribly uh, transparent public explanation as to why the evidence did not support an investigation for whatever you call it in Thailand, unexplained wealth, disproportionate assets. So again, if this is too hot to discuss in this public forum, feel free to, to put that to one side and answer the issue in a more abstract and general level. But I suppose on hearing this, one might wonder, yeah, you can do all this stuff to get further investigation But how, let me put it this way, how confident are you in the existing NACC and or attorney general's office or other public prosecution entities that they would seriously follow up on these kinds of cases when the the people who are implicated by the evidence are politically powerful? Now, don't laugh. The explanation for, for the watch is case is that the deputy prime minister suggested that he borrowed from his friend. So he didn't need to disclose these watches. Uh, <laughs> well, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I have, well, I'm happy to talk about it, of course. There are two ways to receive this news. So the first is quite negative. You are quite hopeless about the situation and you, you can see how there can be political influence in uh, anti-corruption institutions, not only in Thailand, but many other places around the world, especially in the current situation where the political arena is, the situation is quite complex. We have this government for, well, there's been several cabinets, government, of course, but here we have this prime minister for almost seven, seven or eight years now. I can't remember exactly since the coup. And so this kind of 
political influence has been penetrated into these supposed to be an independence organization. There's been rela uh, relationship between the, the commissioner and the deputy prime minister himself. And that and people suspect that this could explain why the case turned out this way. So in this sense, it seems so hopeless. But on the contrary, I find it interesting to see as well, not just hopeless, but let, let's think about it this way. If this case were to, hap were to happen 10 or 15 years ago, I talked to my father who, who worked on anti-corruption area as well. He said that if this were to happen 10 to 15 years ago, you wouldn't even have someone there to put the deputy prime ministers uh, which, with watch, uh, luxurious watch on uh, their social media in the first place. And there wouldn't be the public, a large group of public who, who would share this post, who would find other uh, watch, luxurious watches that he has been wearing throughout his career as a military man and, and politicians. And the case wouldn't even be put into the investigation of the NACC in the first place. So this showed that there might, there might be hope that we can see that people are more enthusiastic about corruption and people feel that, that these cases should be accounted for and that people feel that they should have the power to do something. Of course, at, at the end, it may not be successful, but it can maybe the first step toward a more transparent and more and, and a society where the power is on in the hand of the people more because now although it cannot be proceeded in this case but people know that that something is wrong with this government and people are discontent with with the whole picture of of the government itself and it it has put a lot of pressure in the government and put a pressure on all the independent uh, organization, including the NACC itself. So, yeah, I may not be able to <laughs> answer everything uh, exactly uh, how it should be, but you can look at it, as I mentioned, uh, in two ways like this. That's so fascinating and so helpful because I'll confess that when I heard about and I, I spoke with Thai friends about the so-called wristwatch scandal, it really sounded like a, a very negative story, right? A story where it uh, looked, like, looked like pretty clear evidence of a very powerful person having been in violation of the law, getting away with it because it was too politically powerful. And again, I wasn't necessarily sure it was the NACC's fault. I mean, maybe it was the prudent thing to do that they had really no choice. Not really sure, but it just seemed like a very kind of depressing illustration. Um, and it's maybe especially depressing because my recollection is this military coup that brought, I'll call it all one government. I know the cabinets have changed, but the current prime minister of power was justified, if I remember correctly, principally as a, a claim a, a, on the grounds of anti-corruption. The claim was the previous democratically elected government or series of governments had been just so thoroughly corrupt, um, not only in terms of what they did in office, but in terms of buying votes to get in office that we just had to clean things up, that the coup was necessary to, to clean up the government. And so it seemed pretty, and, and so it seemed like a very negative story to hear seven or eight years later, something like the wristwatch scandal. And what I understand you to be saying is not denying that it is very depressing uh, and is a negative story, but it's also progress. 
right? And this is a theme that I've heard from other people that I've worked with who deal with anti-corruption in difficult, challenging parts of the world. You know, 15 years ago, no one would have paid attention. 15 years ago, probably the NACC wouldn't have even have investigated this, let alone at least invest. They dropped it, but at least they investigated, right? The news covered it. It wasn't buried. Uh, it was politically embarrassing for the government. And he didn't go to jail, but, you know, maybe this means other politicians noted this and maybe they'll be more careful in the future. Maybe it really does mean that things are changing. So I'm, I'm glad. I think this may be a nice way to end our, end our conversation because we're basically reaching the end of our time uh, because it does seem to capture my sense of, of, of from, your, from what you've told me, of kind of where Thailand stands, which is on the one hand, not in a great place, a lot of progress let, yet to be made. But on the other hand, not completely hopeless. People like your organization, other people in civil society, people in the media, and some, it seems like, people in the government or in institutions like the NACC are, are pushing on this issue, are less tolerant of corruption than they were a generation ago, have more tools uh, with respect to technological tools or other tools to, to actually bring pressure to bear to take these issues seriously. Maybe if another generation or two of people like you and your organizations keep pushing on this issue, maybe when something like this happens again another 10 to 15 years, the outcome of the case will be very different. At least that's 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 sort of my final thought on hearing uh, on hearing the su- summary. Any final thoughts you want to share with our listening audience today before we wrap up our conversation? Well, um, your conclusion was very comprehensive and very and precisely the the point that I would like to make in this journey because I think for you as well and for me to be working in this particular area it can be very depressing. You see like millions of baht or dollars being looted away by corrupt politicians or, or corrupt per- people. I would not say not, not only politicians, but corrupt people all the time. And it, can, it tends to be very depressing for you. So for us to, to continue our journey in, in this and then be able to live day by day and then continue our work in, in, this, in this area is to say that we actually make some difference. We're, it might not be a big one, but we are doing something about it. And that is exactly the situation in Thailand. Of course, I said at the beginning, and I'll say it here again, that corruption is still highly pervasive in Thailand, but we are doing something about it. And although the corruption, it's, corruption situation itself might not be a lot better, but I'm sure that we have more tools and the anti-corruption efforts we are, we are developing is is more efficient and potentially be more effective in the near future. So I don't, I don't just hope that in the next 10 to 15 years, the situation will be better. I, ho- I do strongly hope that in the near future, within a few years from now, we could see some progress. And of course, uh, and we are very uh, fortunate to have Professor Stephenson in Bangkok with with us today, and hopefully we can have some more further collaboration. And I'm sure that whatever comes out from our collaboration work together will will definitely be have high contribution for not only to Thailand but for the for the global anti-corruption effort. As you have your anti-corruption uh, global anti-corruption blog lab as a whole. So uh, yes, that's uh, everything. Thank you. I, I very much hope your opti- optimism and your confidence prove uh, to be justified. 
Thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the podcast. Again, my name is Matthew Stevenson. Uh, my guest today on this latest episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast, has been Torpus or Nick uh, Yomnek, Assistant Professor of Economics uh, at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok, a researcher at Siam Lab and the Chief Advisor to And Social Enterprise. Uh, Nick, thank you again for your time and for sharing your thoughts and insights on today's podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about the topics discussed in the interview, check out the show notes. If you want to support us, make sure to give us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. This podcast is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpers and me, Christopher Starke with support by Emi Assad. That's it for today. Have a great week.